One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Forum, Nature Biotechnologies podcast, where we talk to leading researchers in the life sciences about the latest advances in their fields. I'm Michael Francisco, a senior editor at the journal. Today on episode 21, we'll be talking all things protein design and protein structure prediction. Our host is Barbara Shafay, chief editor of Nature Biotechnology, and her guests are Gavor Gregorian, co-founder and chief technology officer of Generate Biomedicines, and Charlotte Dean, a professor of structural bioinformatics at Oxford University. Barbara, what is protein design for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term? Protein design or protein engineering is the creation of proteins with enhanced or novel functional properties. And this has many applications spanning from material science, therapeutics, and diagnostics. Protein engineering can be done using directed evolution, which uses random mutagenesis coupled with selection for specific variants or computational tools. Current state-of-the-art tools use machine learning algorithms to make protein amino acid sequence predictions that will fold to specific structures. Tell us a little bit about your guests, Charlotte and Gaborg. Charlotte and Gaborg both have been researchers in this field for many years. Charlotte is based at the University of Oxford, where she leads the Oxford Protein Informatics Group, which develops novel algorithms, tools, and databases in the fields of protein structure and immunoinformatics. And Gaborg is at Dartmouth College in the U.S. and, as you said, is the co-founder of Generate Biomedicines, which has created a generative model for protein design that was recently published in Nature. Great. Let's get into it. Here's Episode 21 of Nature Biotechnology Forum. Hi, and welcome back to the Forum podcast. Today, I have two guests on the show. Gabor Gregorian, who is the co-founder and chief technology officer at Generate Biomedicines, where he oversees the Generate platform that enables the generation of new drugs on demand. He's also a professor of computer science at Dartmouth College. Charlotte Dean joins us from the University of Oxford, where she is a professor of structural bioinformatics in the Department of Statistics and is also the executive chair of the Engineering of Physical Sciences Research Council. We're going to be discussing the fields of protein structure prediction and protein design, topics that Nature Biotechnology is covering this month in a focus issue. So, the protein design field has changed very rapidly in the last few years, with the application of machine learning technologies such as AlphaFold and RosettaFold to protein structure. Maybe we could start with how you both got interested in this area of research, and then discuss why these new technologies have been so impactful. Charlotte, would you like to start? Um, I'm trying to think about when I got interested. I guess this has been what I've worked on for my entire career, and it's just got more and more exciting as I've been going through it. 
I've always thought that proteins were kind of remarkable things because they can perform incredibly complex functions. I mean, they basically do everything in the body. And if you had the ability to, one, understand how they did that, or two, be able to design them to be able to do stuff, you can do almost anything. That's kind of how I think about it. In particular, for me, it's led to an interest in particular types of proteins like antibodies and nanobodies or other things that can be used in a medical sense because there's so much potential there for to be able to use that kind of design. So I guess for me, it's been this kind of... I've always worked in this area and as the tools and techniques have got more exciting, you're doing more and more and you can do more and more and change more and more as you try and do this. Gubar, what about you? Uh, well, so like, like Charlotte, Charlotte, I've actually also been working on proteins for, my, um, for the entirety of my professional career. And the way that, that started for me is I, my, my initial passion really was physics and, and using physical principles to understand things go, that go on around us. Um, and, and for me, the sort of the most challenging physical problem felt like, you know, understanding how biology works. And proteins were this, this place where all of that came together. The idea that you could, you know, use principles to understand how a molecule works and then use that understanding to understand how biology works. It was just kind of really beautiful for me. Um, you know, as things went along, I think the solution the solutions uh, present themselves in a slightly different form than, than kind of I had originally thought about um, in the sense that machine learning enabled us to infer principles in kind of a scalable way from data rather than having to, kind of, to assume them. But it, it, it's still to me that the, 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 dr the dream is the same, you know, tr sort of understanding the basics so that we can understand how, how biology is orchestrated. Yeah, no, that that's of course, really exciting. Um, so what do you think we've learned from these tools recently about these principles of protein folding that you're, you're describing? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I think most of what we can learn from these tools is yet to come, in, in my view. I think that the one thing we're learning is that if you have methods that can sort of lean into the patterned nature of these uh, molecules in the sense that you have tools that if you have tools that can recognize kind of the high, higher order organization um, that these molecules clearly display and we've known about for, for lots of times, kind of for, for a long time anecdotally, then these tools tend to do quite well in comparison to approaches that, that have to justify everything from kind of microscopic principles. But in terms of what that means about our understanding of how these molecules work, I think most of that work honestly, is still, is still yet to come. I think I would really agree with that. I think what it's done is kind of put sharply into focus something that we were really aware of. I used to run a, one of the questions I used to set graduate students in the course was, it was evolution versus physics in terms of being able to predict protein structure. Now, that's actually not a question because the answer, and we see it more and more clearly, is the best way to do this is the combination of both. Um, it's bringing both sets of ideas and principles in, and it is understanding both that is allowing us to get good at this. So it's almost, I feel at the moment, they haven't, there's so much we can learn from just being able to make these very large numbers of predictions, but it is also reinforcing that connection between we can do this, but don't say I have to do it first principles just from physics, or I have to make a machine learning thing that is a god and you know just recognizes the patterns. There is going to be some combination of all of that. That's where you can see the real power coming out from these methods. 
Yeah, so you, you both have this great history of using, you know, being in this field for, for years now before these methods existed. What can we use these methods for now that couldn't be done previously or that you're, you're changing your thoughts on what the applications of these new methods are versus how you used to do things before? Well, the, the starting point from that really, I mean, it, it starts from when AlphaFold came out and kind of RosettaFold behind it and ColabFold and all of the versions. We moved from a world where thinking about protein structure and having an accurate model of a given structure was a, I need to do some experimental work that's relatively expensive, or it has to be really close to something I already understood, to a world where actually a lot of the time we have a reasonably good representation of the structure. And that has unlocked loads of questions. And one of the ways you can think about that now is if you are designing a function to do something else, forget about predicting structure, I can put structure in as one of the characteristics because I know I can predict it. Not perfectly necessarily, but very well. So in my world, if I think about you know, designing an antibody, I wouldn't think, well, I have to think about that all from sequence space. I can think naturally think about it from a structural point of view straight away. And of course, that makes complete sense because the function of something depends on its shape. And so that's like a, just a tiny starting point, but it's that kind of unlock that it gives you, that ability to start from there. And then I think the next thing is, for me, is the level of confidence it's given people to try and do these things on a computer. It's been a massive step change for me. I suspect it's true for everybody who's a computational person like I am. The step change that's happened from everybody going, well, yes, we're very interested in what you're talking about. Yes, that sounds nice. To actually actively wanting to experimentally test and work with me to see how well these computational methods can improve, speed up, you know, deliver results. And I think that change in attitude, which means that the data is better suited to the computation, the experiments that are carried out make more sense alongside the computation, means that the acceleration we are seeing is not just driven by the improvement in methods, it's actually driven by that partnership that we're now seeing happen all the time. I think similarly for me, um, you know, the thing that is most exciting for me is, of course, design and, and being able to make new proteins, which the, our ability to do that just very recently has has changed dramatically with with you know models like chroma and rf diffusion and just the fact that you can now quite confidently generate novel structures with with you know uh pre-specified properties or pre-specified at least geometric properties if not if not others um and then confidently be able to make sequences and show that experimentally they actually look exactly as you meant them to look um and this is robust, right? That, that's really key. It's not like this had not been done before. It had been, but now it's robust and essentially anyone can do it. That puts us in an, in an entirely different you know, universe. Whereas Charlotte was saying, you know, we can now actually credibly create new hypotheses and make a few things and have a certain confidence that one of those things is probably going to carry out the hypothesis so that you can test it. Um, I think to me, that's just incredibly exciting. Honestly, when I started in this field, I dreamt that one day something like this would be possible, but maybe I didn't quite actually believe that it would be within my lifetime. And now it just happened. And, and it's, it, yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty incredible. So when we get these structure predictions, you both mentioned experimental validation. Do, do these still need experimental validation or um, are, are we pretty confident in what these models are, are spitting out to us? Well, so, so as Charlotte mentioned, for structure prediction, we do have 
um, some decent uh, surrogates of essentially confidence or probability of success. And in many, in many cases, you know, particularly for native, for native proteins, we can be quite confident. We, I mean, I'll never say we, we don't need structure or experimental validation. I think we'll all, you know, if you really know, want to know the answer, you, you need to know the answer. And a model is, is just a model, no matter how good it is. Um, um, but I think what's more interesting is in the space of design, where you're really going out outside of what, what nature has, has sampled, this is where validation is even more important. And particularly when you're applying it to things like, you know, trying to modulate biology for therapeutic purposes, and it goes without question that, you know, everything needs to be validated. Yeah, I, I think that's put really well. It's, the models actually have reasonably good estimates of their error. Not perfect. When you're working within the domain that kind of the natural protein domain they've seen lots of, but when we're talking about design, really it goes back to that idea of, I think I feel similarly to you, that um, we can actually test rather a small number of designs now and be fairly certain one of them will work, but not all of them are going to work. It's not like I can do one design and that will be perfect, but I can now th think about doing 12 designs, 20 designs, and be confident that one of these will be useful for the kind of purpose I'm thinking about. And so that requires experimental validation because I've, I'm not one for one here. <laughs> you know, I might be five in 20 if I'm lucky. I might be one in 20. And it also probably isn't perfect, but that, all that information will feed back into the model to make it better. So it is that link between experiment and computation, but it's allowing you to do far less experimentation and it's allowing you to be much more targeted about what you're doing in terms of, you know, getting it right. So what are some other limitations of these methods? I guess, uh, well, there are lots. Um, <laughs> we should be honest about this because they're completely fantastic. You know, I can still remember one of my students was, because it was obviously online when it happened, online at CASP when the announcement of AlphaFold came out and he was working in protein structure prediction. And his initial response was, my life is over because they have solved the problem. Now, this is not a correct response, but you kind of understand where it came from. And we have to remember just how amazing and how far we have come in what is really only three years you know, the, the things we can do now that we did not imagine. If you'd said in 2019 that we would be able to accurately design things and make 20 or 30 constructs and one of those would work, we'd think we were nuts. So I always want to say that first before I talk about the things they can't do because otherwise it feels a bit unfair. But we know they do some crazy things. So we know that if you push them well outside their training data, they tend to produce complete nonsense. Not always, but frequently because... These are models that are learning from data. So if something makes no sense in the context of their data, they tend to do stuff, you know, stuff that they find much harder. They're, you know, concepts that we have no experimental data to help them with. So the concept of flexibility. We know that, you know, proteins are flexible molecules and yet we predict them as static molecules and we know we're doing that. And then, you know, other things that are clearly harder to do, though we've seen the latest releases of various things. So, you know, the white paper from AlphaFold and the, you know, the Rosetta diffusion all atom, Rosetta fold all atom, how much harder it's probably going to be to deal with things beyond just the protein, because actually we don't have as much data about protein small molecule interactions as we do of just proteins. And Small molecules, in a weird kind of way, are potentially more complex than proteins because proteins are made from nice 20 building blocks. Yep. The estimated drug-like space of small molecules is 
10 to the 50, 10 to the 60. So much bigger space to worry about. So potentially more complex and less data. So you can see the boundaries are going to come where we don't have the data to explore it. And where we don't have the data, these models immediately start to have, you know, they, why would they understand an area that we've never shown them any information in? So extrapolating into those really unknown areas, I think, is going to be continuously problematic. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I, and I would also add that um, a lot of our successes have been really in the realm of structure, predicting it, designing it, you know, and, and as Charlotte points out, you know, particularly within proteins, and it gets harder as you go outside of it. I would say one big area where we haven't met, made as much progress yet is understanding the structure function relationship because as soon as you learn to predict and design function you suddenly remember or i should say design and predict structure you suddenly remember that wasn't actually the point um, and the point was to, to kind of use that as a stepping stone to understanding and orchestrating function and so i think it's that's where our biggest limitations lie in my view now is okay what do you actually do with it how do you how do you drive biology if you can anticipate um, and encode structure um, and but it's also where it's very exciting because we we now have exactly what we've been asking for you know the ability to predict and design structure so now kind of you know starts the work of actually figuring out how you use those capabilities to to drive biology to understand biology yeah so so these next steps to you know designing a particular function for a protein do do you think it, it's an issue mainly of needing better training data or do we just need a, a conceptually different model architecture or are there more options out there yet to be discovered i think it's probably all of the above i think there is a component of of data because one of the reasons why we have been so successful in the structure realm is because the data sets have been so nice, right? So well annotated, so so regular, so kind of ideal for, for learning, as it turns out. Um, I think maybe we don't have quite that same um, situation with function. So, you know, trying to get to as much as possible this kind of well-described and annotated functional data set. It's not that there aren't any, there certainly are data, but, you know, I think one component of just being better at function is better organizing and measuring new data sets around function. But I also do think that, you know, it will require new types of models because I think if you ask, you know, three different researchers uh, uh, what, what is what is protein function really mean and how do you how would you describe it? You'll probably get three different answers and if you ask three people what structure means and how you describe it, I think the answers would be more similar. So I think yes, we're yet to think about like what's a proper representation of function how do you learn it? What types of models, you know, should should really kind of exist to do it? So I think it's yeah, it's a bit about about all of those things, and and also just how to ask good questions. If we can do structure now, how do you how do you ask functional questions? What's the right experiment to do? Yeah, I think I don't think I have anything to add there. I think that the to me, it's always been clear that function has been defined in a very hand wavy way, um, and. There's, you know, um, the deep mind guys talk about this really well, but others have spoken about it really well. In terms of protein structure prediction, it's a lovely question to set yourself. I give you this list of letters, you give me three-dimensional shape, and I can express it very easily to a computer exactly what I want it to do. Even though I know that's not completely actually the question I want answered, but I can write that question down and I can write that into a computer. 
Next question. I give you a list of amino acids. You tell me function. That's completely undefined as a question because there's a, there's a myriad of different ways I could say that I'm giving you that answer. And we need to be able to put that into a language that we can work with in a computational sense, or at least that we agree is the right language even as we do this. Yeah, so, so I guess what we're getting at here partly is the ability to make these proteins de novo functional would be hugely impactful to all different fields. There's tons of applications. Uh, what do you think are the low-hanging fruits right now in terms of biotech applications for protein design structure? Um, well, I would say any any place where structure-function relationships are, are are somewhat established, you know, where we actually know how to go after function using structure as a surrogate, and these include, you know, you'd say let's say your traditional agonist antagonists, where you either know, you know, at least from a therapeutic application standpoint, you know, you either know the relevant binding sign you need to occlude in order to prevent um, the relevant biology, whether it's a pathogen entering your cell or, or something else happening. Um, you know, that, that's a way in which you can tie a binding event to a particular location to essentially functional or anticipated functional outcome. I think, you know, similarly, if you have kind of described the conformational landscape of a molecule experimentally and you believe that one of those conformations is responsible for the state you're trying to elicit, again, this is where you can tie uh, structure to function. Um, I would say maybe enzymes um, and design of catalysis is going to be a really interesting realm now uh, because it's while it's never going to be trivial, at least for, for now, although we should never say never, I mean, we should learn that things are developing very quickly, but I think right now it's still not trivial. However, with your ability to basically as Charlotte said earlier, you know, create a small number of designs and, and, and expect that maybe at least if one or a few of them would actually take on the structural state you, you expect. And being able to sample that, you know, very, very broadly, you know, should mean that you should be able to, to create catalysis more readily than you've been able to do before. So those are just some, some things that come to mind. Yeah, it's, it, I think it's that concept of where we know what we want to be able to do and that link between the structure and function is key because what we are good at predicting at the moment or much better at predicting is structure. And then I think, I completely agree, I think the enzyme stuff is something that may well come, I'm not going to say immediately, but I do think that's something that's on its way because that's a, they are also nice designable shapes because they're this kind of rigid shape that we have a good understanding of. We understand the mechanisms of enzymes. So we're kind of in a good place to work with those. You know, I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about antibodies, as I've said, and there we're in a reasonably good place in the sense that we have a lot of data around them. And, you know, as saying, if you've got a specific binding site you're aiming at, this type of design suddenly becomes very attractive for that kind of development of, you know, biomedicines. I think one of the other areas might be around things like vaccinations and things like that, being able to design the proteins that will elicit the correct response. Because that's, it's always a tricky area that getting that just right. And, particularly if we can design them such that they would cover multiple variants of something, because at the moment that's one of the hardest things to do. But actually that's a really doable task if we've got this level of control over structure, because that's what elicits the response, and therefore we know what response it should elicit based on the structure, and we know that that would 
you know, the body is really doing the function for us there, but we could control that. So there are loads of other areas as well, but I think it's that whole thing about where we understand what we want to do and therefore what must be built to do it, because that's what we can do at the moment. We can build stuff. So, so you both mentioned enzymes, which I, I think is really interesting. Um, these, if we're looking at designing enzymes, these proteins change conformations in different situations. And can, can current models take this into account already? Well, I'd say it would still be a challenge to really anticipate that the dynamic aspect of enzymes that, that is so important for their function. Um, I would say my, my being bullish on enzymes is less to do with the fact that we can anticipate the full conformational ensemble and, and, the, and the full kind of catalytic reaction. It's more just that if you can create a relevant shape that is kind of a substrate-sized shape with the right uh, functional groups, you know, in roughly the right places to enact the chemistry you want. And you can do this kind of IID, you can do this many, many times, you know, with every the rest of the protein just being otherwise, you know, uh, sampled with no constraints, um, and you succeed at some rate, it just seems to me that you should, I mean, that's an interesting question that I think we'll probably get an answer pretty quickly to in the literature, that you should start seeing catalysis, and that's not necessarily going to be optimized but we have tools for, for doing that kind of optimization after the fact. Yeah, and also I think we know the kind of, if you, it, the states that are important here, because we're able to work out, for example, if what we need to do is stabilize the transition state or we need to stabilize. Enzymes is an area where people have spent an awful lot of time thinking about the structural constraints and the, you know, the chemistry that's exactly needed around them. And the actual, if you look at the structures of them, that they have this kind of controlled structural shape. So it's the kind of thing where I can imagine that you can do this. Not that we can do it now, but it sort of seems plausible given what we can do. And you're right, I think the flexibility thing is it's not there, but this might be one way into it by creating lots of structures that are not very different from one another and seeing what their footprints do and how they change is one way of understanding that space as well. So, so what do you think is, is most needed in order to start to apply or, I mean, these methods are already working towards, you know, developing marketable proteins, um, but what do you feel are the next steps needed to, to get into that space or, or do you feel like they're ready to apply right now? I think they're being applied right now all over the place constantly. It, it's a bit like kind of they are a just a new tool that's been added to the toolbox of things that we can use and they massively accelerate some of the things that people are trying to do. And then I think it's a lot of the same things that we've both already mentioned are things that would make them more powerful. So if they did understand flexibility, you know, that'd be great. Yeah, but nobody understands flexibility at the moment because we don't even have the experimental data to truly understand it either. We just sort of accept that it's happening and have snapshots of parts of what's happening there. And then, you know, if they could understand the interactions between all of the other things. So people have used them a lot to make the large scale protein complexes, but how they interact with other entities. So small molecules, RNA, DNA. And it looks like that's on its way, but it'll be interesting to see how well that goes. There'll be other things like how well they integrate with other parts of what you're trying to predict. So... If you want to build an entire pipeline, it isn't just about one property. We've talked a lot here about getting it to do a specific function. But if we think in terms of medicines, actually, the bigger challenge for a 
sort of a biologic based medicine of any type is not just it must bind here and do this it's all the other things it mustn't do at the same time so it must not bind to anything else it must be expressible in very large quantities it must be human so that I don't promote an immunogenic reaction you know and on and on and so the ability to optimize multiple properties I think will start becoming really key within this if because that's the thing that will drive them to being much more of a, a one-stop shop than they are at the moment as opposed to a hypothesis generator that speeds us up in areas and pieces we're trying to do. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I mean, I, I, I too care about the space of therapeutics, of course, in terms of applications. And I, I do know and agree that, you know, these models are already being applied. And that also that the bigger problem is, is sort of less understanding and anticipating the molecular function um, and more understanding function in the broader biological context, any kind of off-target interactions and any unintended effects. And so for that reason, to our conversation around function, I think you asked kind of what, what's needed next to really have these types of models have maximal impact. I think understanding function in, in a biological sense of it in the context of relevant you know, tissues and, and ultimately the organism is going to be very important. And the better we understand it, the better we can really drive these models towards generating you know, not not just molecularly successful solutions, but also you know solutions that are that are right for for um, you know the biology and treating treating disease. Um, and I'd say that maybe you know one thing we one sort of lesson that we can draw from the success of, of these molecular models is that again they came out of our ability to generate large scale data sets, uh, well kind of well curated, well well organized data sets. So if we want to see similar things happen in function, that's what we should be doing. I mean, ultimately, if you want to understand, you know, function as the as as in what your molecule does in a human being, we need as much data on that as possible. Now, of course, there's some limitations about how how, how much data in that space we can gather, but we can do a lot more about organizing the data that we do have, and and being kind of deeper in terms of our mining of data when we do do, for instance, clinical trials and, and, and gather data on patients. So I think all of those things, but it's really going to be about how you drive these models, what you do with them to advance therapeutics design, which is, again, a very exciting place to be because even just a, you know, a few years ago, we, we couldn't have, you know, we couldn't have said any of this. So thinking farther into the future now, um, what are some of the most exciting future applications in your opinion? Big picture. I mean, I'm biased, obviously. I think, I think therapeutics are an awesome application. Um, I think just my dream is that you'd be able to characterize an ailment and then kind of a print a molecule that's specific to that person's um, condition sort of on the spot and we're many many years away from that but it's but it's a beautiful kind of asymptotic kind of dream to, to be driving towards um, and I've already mentioned about some of the some of the things that are really needed to advance the field I do have to say though that it may be that the fastest next kind of big impact um, implications of the of these technologies may be outside of therapeutics it may be that it's actually around um, reagents or materials or, or, or nanotechnology just because we've suddenly gotten a way to organize matter 
in, in, in a way that we've just never been able to do before. Our only options pr previously have been crystals, right? That's the only way you get atoms to sit where, where you want is you create some kind of a solid state. And I'm exaggerating, there have been others as well. But, but I think like the easiest was this kind of regular lattice of some kind. And to have this level of control over not all of matter, obviously this is right now proteinaceous matter and we talked about going, you know, even slightly outside of it would be challenging, but it is nevertheless an entirely novel capability and I wonder if, you know, applications outside of health will be just, just as impactful. Yeah, I can imagine things like sustainability or environmental issues, you know, you're, you're dealing with less clinical regulation and patients, uh, so there's uh, some advantages there, but of course, obviously the same limitations yeah. uh, as well with using these models. Um, what about you, Charlotte? What, what do you think? What are you excited about? I think one of the reasons that I get excited about this is in the medical range is it costs way too much money to make a drug and it takes way too long. And everyone said that for a really long time and they talk about it for all sorts of reasons. And the way too long is obvious. You know, you want to help people now. And if you have an event like the COVID pandemic, you want to be able to have medicines very quickly and readily available to help people. But the cost, I don't think people talk about in quite the right way, which is right now we won't work on diseases that actually impact a large number of people on this planet because you cannot financially do so. It makes no sense for a pharmaceutical company to actually do it. And that makes me really sad. Um, so I really hope that these methods actually do fulfill the promise that they're aiming to do, which is that they actually bring that cost down so that we can realistically work on loads of things that affect literally millions of people on the planet that currently we don't think about. If I think outside of medicine, kind of the same things come into my head, which is you, you mentioned kind of, things around climate change or, you know, energy is going to be a massive thing for all of us over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, because, you know, fossil fuels, there is going to be less of them. That's a, we're burning them, it goes down, it's, it's a finite supply. And proteins very happily <laughs> capture energy from the sun. They're really good at it, in fact. Um, and, you know, we can make amazing materials if we have the ability to design, to control, to reduce the amount of energy we use for chemical reactions. And I don't mean necessarily the chemistry I think about all day, which might be making small molecules or that kind of thing. The chemistry we use to make the materials that we need you know, for modern life. So the potential for these types of methods to, if you like, completely change how we do these things to an extent that it's not just it's a bit better or a bit more fun or a bit more exciting, but to change the kind of cost regime so that you're actually in a world where we can do some of the things that really matter is, I find that really exciting. Yeah, I do as well. Um, I think that's a really great spot to end. Uh, so thank you again, Charlotte and Gaborg. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Um, I'm really looking forward to your exciting research in the future and all the exciting research in this space still to come. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. That was episode 21 of Nature Biotechnology Forum. Many thanks to our guests, Charlotte Dean and Gavor Gregorian. You can listen to all episodes of this and our other podcasts by searching Nature Biotechnology wherever you find and listen to podcasts. If you have any thoughts or comments on our podcast, find us on X at Nature Biotech. We're also on Facebook and Instagram.
Until next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.